Hello and welcome. My name is Jo Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. So welcome back and we are here with the final episode of season two. Oh, are we sad? Are we relieved? Are we surprised? <laughs> I'm surprised is probably quite accurate, but yeah, I suppose more importantly, how are, how are the listeners feeling? We'd love to thank you for coming on this journey with us. Um, over the last 10 episodes, we have been looking back at some of the stories that shape our lives and our thinking. And we really hope you've enjoyed it. I even said nine episodes. I wrote it down for you. The last nine, this is 10. This I... is not complicated. <laughs> Oh, you can't have that. So Mm -hmm. in this podcast, we look beyond the headlines into the cultural stories of the day, the profound questions that we are all asking of what does it mean to be human? And we started out at the story clash around whose lives matter. We jumped into things like foundational stories. And again and again, we have returned to the point of intersection between the cultural story or probably more accurately stories and the true, the good, and the beautiful story of the gospel. So, in this final episode, we're going to be looking at the final part of the God story. Where is it all happening? We're going to be tracking the movement from the garden that we see at the beginning of our story to the city uh, where we get to the end. We're going to look at the progression of creation and the dynamic nature of God, the nature of judgment, and lots more. Because we need to know the end of the story. We need to know where we are going. How the story ends has this an impact on how we live here and now. I always pick on my poor old dad when I'm trying to illustrate this. Um, he was a Christian, he loved Jesus, he worked hard in business, and basically his philosophy was to earn as much money as he could um, to give away to the stuff that mattered, which in his view was mission, seeing uh, souls saved, as he would probably put it. But really practically, He would drive along and he would just literally throw rubbish out the window of his car. And the reason why, he understood that the end of the story was the destruction of this world, that it was going to be burned up. He had a misread of 2 Peter 3, that this world was going to be destroyed by fire. And so his understanding of the end of the story, that yes, souls would be saved, but that this earth would be destroyed, led to some pretty interesting decisions in the here and the now. A real focus on the gospel, yes, but while simultaneously throwing his letter out of his car window. And I think this for me is why we're so interested in stories, because they shape who we are and how we act. Now, hoping that I won't get a a John Piper tweet. Can I mention Rob Bell? Must you really? (laughs) Well, because he's quite helpful in this. He would argue that how you start a story and how you end a story affects the story that you're telling. Um, How we understand the start or the end of a story affects the shape of the story in the middle. So right back at the beginning of in episode two, we talked about the importance of foundation stories, how they build our lives. Um, But the telos, the end point of our story is just as crucial. Our premise throughout this podcast has been that stories shape us, whether they realize whether we realize it or not. Which is why I want to talk about a guy called Edward Bernays. Yeah, now. I have actually studied this guy, but I think that probably most people are not going to know that name. So tell us more. 
Yeah, well, I think it was actually John Tyson uh, who first introduced me to this guy. Um, and he's called the father of public relations, which is why you studied him. Um, and uh, he was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud uh, and birthed advertising really as we know it. If you've ever watched Mad Men, I mean, he really was the original Madison Avenue advertising guy. And he's credited uh, with all sorts of things, like, for example, making it acceptable for women to smoke in public. He really created the idea that smoking keeps you thin. And even really the concept behind that, that being thin is a good thing. It was not always so, apparently. Um, and he ran a campaign in which cigarettes were, he called them torches of freedom. And so he got debutants and feminists, and they were encouraged to gather together and to light up. And uh, so he did, it was very successful in this campaign. But one of the problems was that his main client was Lucky Strikes Cigarettes. And they had a green packet and people didn't like the pack color, but Lucky Strikes didn't want to change. So rather than changing, you might think that's the obvious problem, but instead, no, no, Edward Bernays came up with a plan to change women's fashion to match the cigarette packet. And so he managed to, he wrote to interior designers and fashion designers, department stores, uh, prominent women, and he pushed the green kind of a color as the hot new color for the season. He actually launched a green ball inviting the rich and the famous, uh, and basically everybody had to wear green to come along to this ball. And so it became the color of the season and Lucky Strikes were happy because they got their female clientele, but they also got to keep their pack color green. It's a mad story. I think it's incredible. Um, he wrote a book called Propaganda, suggesting that those who manipulate the unseen mechanisms are the true ruling power. Um, I, yeah, I love it. The dark arts of the advertising and marketing world. Um, I love the hairnet story. Um, we all know if you go to McDonald's or, or any kind of food preparation space, the staff to this day will all wear hairnets, which we assume it is just simply because that's what health and safety tell us we have to. But actually, it's down to Edward Bernays. His client in the 1930s made hairnets. The problem was that all the women were keeping their hair short in bobs and things and didn't need hairnets. No problem. Bernays instead got various authorities to warn of the dangers of unbound hair in factories and food preparation spaces. And in response, government started passing legislation requiring the wearing of hairnets on the job. It is absolutely incredible. I mean, these stories, they're almost unbelievable. You think, is, could that really be true? And he, he changed the story. He created a whole new market for his client's product. Uh, and 100 years later, basically, uh, that market still exists for hairnets to this day um, because of what he did. And it reminds me of another uh, one of my classics, The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I take it you mean that the the scene where Meryl Streep explains to Anne Hathaway how fashion works, that she can't just be wearing the lumpy jumper and thinking that she's just above all fashion. Oh, it's just, I think it's it's absolutely classic. And that that is the moment. So Meryl Streep's playing um, the, the kind of, uh, the, the, the role of the, the, the editor Miranda. of the magazine. Miranda, that's right. Um, and uh, so she's, and, and Anna Hathaway pretends she's no interest in fashion, says, you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, Miranda's saying. But what you don't know is that that sweater isn't just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's not cerulean. And you're also blindly unaware of the fact that in 
2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection on cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it then? They, they did the cerulean military jackets. And then cerulean started showing up in these collections of all these different designers. And then it just kind of filtered down through the department stores and trickled down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the very people in this room from a pile of stuff. Okay, so moving swiftly past the fact that you can quote The Devil Wears Prada verbatim. Um, oh, one of my top 10 films, yes. So wrong. What we really want to emphasise is this point that stories shape us. They shape our discipleship. They shape how we live. They form us. Narratives are not neutral. We are constantly being shaped by stories. And it isn't just a matter of looking back on our foundation or origin stories. It's also a matter of looking forward to where we're going. Culture too has telos stories, stories that tell us how things are going to end. Thanks to Darwin and his theory of evolution, we lost any sense of divine purpose, intelligent creation, uh, purpose and meaning, and replaced it with the survival of the fittest and a simple biological drive to further our genetic lines. This telos story was then strengthened by French philosophers in the earliest early 20th century, like Camus and my favourite philosopher, because I disagree with him so vehemently, Sartre, who argued that the awful freedom of humanity, that we are doomed to project and choose our own meaning and purpose to make sense of the world and our lives. Nothing is given to us. Uh, nothing is external. It all comes from us. Nothing happens when we die. It is just it's all on us and we have to make our own way in the world. Yeah, and it's really striking the sort of starkness of that scientific story that takes us to nothing. There is nothing happens after death. If the future then is annihilation, there's nothing more than we need to get it while it's hot. We need to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. As the, the writer of Ecclesiastes put it, there's nothing in the future. So you got to live for the max right now. I, I, I think this is really prevalent. I think we see this all over the place where it's just about be happy and make your own choices. I remember reading a story about a, a, a footballer in the Liverpool youth squad um, and he was talking about a decision that he'd made because there was another player ahead of him in selection and he wanted to make it the first team um, and he he, this player was in the way. So he just went for him. He was like, I need to take this player out so that I get the slot. It's me or him. Um, and he injured the guy deliberately during a training session. The guy was on crutches for two weeks and he didn't care because the point was he went after what he wanted and he thought, he's like, I'm not ashamed of my actions. It was me or him. And I chose me. This is the life. There aren't long-term consequences. Do what you need to do to get what you want. And so the other alternative to that then is if it's is to sort of bring the future into the present, the utopia in the here and now is to work for progress right now. And we've seen that adopted actually by both left and right and culturally in lots of different ways. 
Yeah, exactly. So we see in this kind of idea of the progressive, the progr- um, this idea that we can make our future better by the choices that we make make now. Like education has become the holy grail for progressives. If you educate people in the ways of tolerance and personal freedom and authenticity, we are going to build ourselves this perfect world. This is what civilization and the developed world is leading us towards. But that's also why 2016 came as such a shock to so many people. How, when you've got this amazing education and you've got democracy and you've got freedom of information and speech and all the rest of it, how did two of the most sophisticated societies in the world vote for Brexit and for Trump in forms of this populist nationalism? It shouldn't have happened. So almost progressivism has had to reform itself and say, actually, choices now affect our future. Dystopia is just an election or a big red button away. But if we choose the right laws, if we make the right leaders, if we understand the emergencies that we're facing for our children, Greta Gunberg style, we will achieve the utopia for everybody. Yeah, and it's not just a tell-a-story uh, for the left. We've seen what uh, the over-politicization of utopian stories can do just across the board. So some on the right hitched their wagon to Trump. Uh, they ignored character flaws and an almost kind of blind belief that he would bring about some sort of utopian Christian nationalism. Um, they believed the kind of QAnon conspiracy theories. Uh, and those stories, again, were also used then to justify you want to put that in inverted commas, probably, that the storming of the capital. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And again, we see that mirrored on the left now with the stories and the commentary rising up with Biden and Harris. Um, there was this... Um, piece put out last week by a Christian leader praising all the different executive orders Biden had just signed. And it was eerily like some of the comments that you may have heard from the right from um, the early days of Trump, that this guy was going to save America and save the world because of the laws and the orders that he was passing. There was no balance, no critique, no weighing up the decisions that he was making, maybe around choice, life, abortion, transgender. All of these things were just a blanket. Yay, this is the guy that's going to save us. This piece was sort of imagining this almost utopian future under Biden and Harris. But that notion of political utopia has consequences. And so what are those consequences? I guess somebody might be thinking. And it is that we put too much reliance on political leaders. We actually put our trust, our faith in them to a level that they can't sustain. They're not going to meet that. And we also fail to critique them when they get stuff wrong, which we need to be doing. We need to be engaging. We need to be in dialogue. Political leaders are not going to solve our problems. There is no political utopia in the here and now. We need to be realistic to that, no matter which side of the political spectrum we come from. So if you haven't picked up on it already, (laughs) we really want to hammer home the importance of story. We all live and are impacted by stories and the telos, the end or the goal of many stories really isn't that great. Uh, Annihilation is offered on one hand or a kind of of political social utopia on the other. Now, utopia might be a better story, but it doesn't really hold up because it's based on human progress and we're not that reliable at making very good decisions. Absolutely. 
And even when it comes to then our own end story as Christians, we haven't always done a great job on the telos piece. Like, what is the end? If you asked our culture, I think many would say, and probably quite legitimately, that Christians are all around judgment and around hell. That's the part of the story that they hear. And so for some Christians, the other side is, you know, heaven is um, an entirely other place in the future. It's the place where judgment will happen, where justice will be done. And the consequence of that is then that we don't need to worry about those things in the here and now. That's all going to be done in the future. And given that the biblical story is moving towards renewal and the redemption of all things, I think we have to confess that we've done a pretty bad job at times of communicating that to our culture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I love the movement of the biblical story, and and I will I will tell this story over and over again because it's dynamic. It is progressive. The progressives have ch- have stolen this part of our story. Um, our our story moves dynamically. We go from a garden in Eden to a city of the New Jerusalem. We see in Revelation twenty one a holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, but with God, where He will make His dwelling place with humanity and be amongst us. Death, mourning, pain, suffering—they will be no more. And instead of the two trees that we saw in the garden, the tree of life stands alone in the city the tree of wholeness and of healing, bearing fruit in every season, the leaves bringing healing to all nations. And we're told again that the temple is gone, that there will be no restrictions placed on the presence of God. He will be with us and we will worship the lamb on the throne. Wow. And it's such a different vision um, than something like the Left Behind series that we had to watch as kids in, in the church that I went to. I remember it's just so vividly this one particular scene and it's a razor kind of vibrating or buzzing away on the sink as the kids come in and they find it. And then there's this realization that their parents have been raptured and they have been left behind. And I remember us all looking in the room like we were petrified uh, and became Christians for you know the 32nd time just to be sure in that moment. <laughs> I love the fact that this podcast is basically just one long therapy session for you to recover from your fundamentalist upbringing. It's It's true. It's true. I know. It's cheap therapy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. (laughs) I remember years later then preaching on uh, Matthew 24. um, You know, there's two people in the field. One is taken and the other's left. And then you look at the verse before, uh, you know, and and it draws an analogy with the flood. Um, they'll be eating and drinking in the days of Noah, and then the flood comes and took some people away. Well, who who gets taken away? It's those who've been judged. It's like, hold on. So you want to be left behind? It's <laughs> you know the the judgment is on those who are taken away. Um, and there's this whole series of left behind books, and not only are they really badly written, um, but they suggest that the future is somehow in doubt. That there's a battle still to be fought. That we don't know the end of the story. But this is what we looked at in the last episode. Jesus declared it is finished on the on the cross. Sorry. You know, the decisive battle has been fought. The future is not in doubt in any way, shape or form. Jesus wins. In fact, he has already won. Now, we're not just running around arrogantly shouting, we win, we win. But but we do want to live into the certainty of the God story that we've been invited to. We don't know everything about the future, but we do know a lot Colossians 1 is this beautiful picture of Jesus, supreme in the end, leading a resurrection parade. 
everything of God finds its proper place in him, even without crowding, it's all right. Broken, dislocated pieces of the universe have been properly fixed and fit together in this vibrant harmonies because of Jesus and his death on the cross. Creation is ordered. Everything is as it should be in its right and proper place. Yeah. And in his book, Dominion, everybody's favourite agnostic, Tom Holland, um, the historian and, and an agnostic argues like the entire fabric of the cosmos was ruptured when God became human and walked on earth. The crucifixion of Jesus, and I, I want to add the resurrection to that, was not merely an event in history, but the very pivot around which the cosmos turns. Because it points to the future, and Jesus will lead the resurrection parade in, in Colossians 1, and we are invited to join in that. And so the telos, the end that God invites us into is redemption, is reconciliation with him, is, is a resurrected life, is the renewal of all things. What happens in the end, the telos, the future effects are here and now and how we live life today. John Mark Comer picks up on a lot of these ideas in his book, Garden City, Work, Rest and the Art of Being Human. Um arguing that we, as we have, are made in the image of God to partner with him now in continuing that creation story that we read in Genesis to draw out the riches of the raw material that he laid out for us and is already there. But he also reminds us that our work and rest matter both now, but also forever they have a bearing on eternity. Our resurrection lives will have work in it. Our work will be a joy, not a toil or a burden. The curse will gone, but the, the work will still be there. Work will bring us peace, flourishing and life forever, working alongside Jesus. Yeah, and then living in the Garden City reality means that our work is incredibly important. It is our act of worship as part of what we do to follow Jesus. We're invited through that to cooperate in various ways in the kingdom coming to earth. It's just, it's hard to get our heads around the scale and scope of what's being talked about here. And we're also then invited into rest as an act of both remembrance, looking backwards, but an act of worship and looking forward. The, the seventh day of rest wasn't closed. It carries on through and we're looking forward to rest. And so Sabbath is this weekly signpost between two worlds, the one we live in and the one that is to come. Which brings us to the idea of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Or inaugurated eschatology, as you like to avoid saying. Yes, I, I really do, because I hate that word. Um, what does it mean? <laughs> I know, I remember going to Bible college, people kept talking about eschatology, and I was like, what is that? Um, eschatology, getting out of here. Uh, the study of the last things, eschatology, what happens in the end? And then the inauguration bit is the beginning of that. So we just had the inauguration of President Biden. He begins, he's inaugurated into public office. So Jesus comes and that is the beginning, the inauguration of what the end will look like. He is bringing about the kingdom of God, but it's yet to be consummated to come in all of its fullness. That's the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live in these in-between times, experiencing aspects of the now of the kingdom but also the not yet, because some of it is still future. So some people may have an over-realized eschatology, which means that they want everything out of the future 
pulled into the here and now, that there should no longer be any evil in the world. Everyone should be healed of sickness. There should be no poverty or suffering. Everything should be the way God has designed it to be right now. And if you believe well enough, if you have enough faith, if you fast or pray enough, you will experience it. Yeah, which is hugely problematic. And you kind of feel it even as you're saying it there. You look, you know, if you don't see healing now, then why is that? Well, it must be a lack of faith. If you're not wealthy and prosperous now, well, that must be a lack of faith. And that's some of the the tensions in around things like the prosperity gospel and that over-realized eschatology that leads to saying all healing is available and should happen here and now. And if it doesn't happen, it's on you. Whereas on the other side of the coin, you have an underrealized eschatology, which is that everything is in the future. There is no sense of the now of the kingdom. If you believe in Jesus, you've got your ticket to heaven, put it in your pocket because eternity starts when you die. Life is now just a waiting game. Yeah. And that can lead then to the real passivity um, about what's wrong with the world, you know, because oh, if we oppose violence now, we're trying to establish the kingdom of God. We're taking on his work. If we oppose greed now, we're trying to establish God's kingdom. And it comes from people who are often pretty comfortable with the status quo. Life's working from them. And so it allows them really to ignore the challenges of Jesus' kingdom activities uh, and to challenge some of the systems of the world um, and that he would expect his disciples to, to, to be challenging and to be up against. And so they kind of default to the status quo and we'll just wait until we die and everything will get sorted then. I think it was um, Dallas Willard who first sort of articulated it to me that this truth that eternity with Jesus starts the moment you accept him as Lord and Saviour. We're waiting, yes, in part, for the fullness, that consummation, as you talked about. But we are already born again. We are already citizens of his kingdom. And we are heralding that kingdom is at hand. Our telos is being pulled into the story we're telling today. And we are called to live it out. of our story is vitally important for us to know and to understand. I love the vivid and dynamic picture Revelation paints of our eternity in the presence of God. Yeah, because lots of people, to lots of people, heaven is made up of kind of fluffy white clouds and boring harps. Um, and I think it's Randy Alcorn who says that too many Christians indulge in crystal platonism when it comes to heaven. And that's really the idea that physical bodies and the physical world are bad. And that that's Plato. That's not the Bible. That's a big problem throughout our story. And then it's led to view of heaven in which people kind of float around with wings and the idea that we'll be in this perpetual worship service and that somehow that's a bit boring. The reality is Adam and Eve had real bodies before and after they sinned, that Jesus had a real body before and after his resurrection, that our resurrected bodies will absolutely be different but there will be continuity with our bodies in the here and now. After the resurrection, we will still be who we were, but glorified and transformed. And we don't understand all of that. But there's a, there's a physical nature of Eden, this current earth, and there's a future glorified heaven and earth, as a, and they're all being made good and enjoyable and physical. And so we've got to be really careful that we don't say, look, physical world bad, and there's some spiritual world we're going to. There will be continuity between this world and the next but it will be glorified and it will be transformed. 
because the important thing is that eternity is about the fact that we will be spending time with God. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven because our hearts will be pure and we'll see people as they truly are, every relationship in heaven will be pure. We will never believe the outrageous lie whispered into Eve's ear that our deepest needs can be met in any person or in any way other than in Jesus. Yeah, and in case uh, anyone thinks we're strategically avoiding it, um, we do need to mention judgment and hell. Uh, A friend of mine this week actually was tweeting a really old hymn, If men go to hell, who cares? And uh, it's just a, a classic kind of moment, just a reminder that we, we have to talk about these things. There are different views on the timing of judgment, um, but not about whether or not it will happen. The narrative of judgment stretches back to our foundation story and the importance of freedom and free will. I find C.S. Lewis most helpful here. All that are in hell, choose it. Without the self-choice, there could be no hell. Hell is characterized by self-centeredness and degraded forms of love jealousy, possessiveness, manipulativeness. Instead of reaching out to others in love, damn souls love only themselves. And as they become more and more self-absorbed, they become smaller and smaller. So that emphasizes the contrast, doesn't it? That hell is is the separation from God, just as, as heaven is union with God. It's our true home. It is where God wills what is good, where his rule and reign is established, where what should be will be. And and this is what it means to be fully human. In, in Lewis's The Last Battle, they find themselves in Aslan's country, but they need to travel further up and further in to reach deep heaven. And even Lewis acknowledged that he just, he simply can't describe it. But even Lewis, like many others, warns about getting obsessed with the factual details of the afterlife. We've got to hold on to the hope and the desire to be in God's presence. In Mere Christianity, he points, uh, or sorry, puts it this way. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. And I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Okay, as we land, let's try and tie some, a few strands together. There are a lot of strands. I look forward to seeing how you tie these all together. So <laughs> you, you go first. Yeah, gee, thanks. I suppose I just love the crescendo of the biblical story, this picture that Revelation paints of the multitude surrounding uh, the throne of God, worshipping, working, delighting in his presence, the order of creation restored. Man is off the throne and God is king of all. This is the conclusion of my story. It brings me hope. It reminds me why I share Jesus. It convinces me that I need to submit to the rule of God in my life today. It is the most beautiful of stories and I've given my life to it. Yeah, I think that's just, uh, that is it in many ways. And we are living in this time of a of culture clash. There is a war of narratives And we're committed to living by a compelling alternative narrative, the story of Jesus and his kingdom. John Tyson again puts it this way. Culture change happens not by random individual stories of authenticity, 
but by narrative shifts and claims uh, that are backed up by carefully crafted stories. We need to get the narrative right, and then we have to embody that. Too often we've got the narrative wrong. It's a story of personal salvation, a story of escapism, a story of saving souls. And also, we fail to embody that story. You've got Christian nationalism. It's easy to point to the US, but I live in Northern Ireland where we have also done our fair share of Christian nationalism. You've got kind of stories of religion and nominalism. You've got the misuse and the outright abuse of power. You've got rules and regulations. You've got money and consumerism. I mean, the list of how we fail to embody the story is also sadly endless. So we have some serious work to do to, to get our narrative right, where Jesus is Lord and the gospel is the good, true and beautiful story of what it means to be human and live in this world. And then we need to reform. We need to encourage the church to embody this story. This pandemic has been an incredibly challenging season, but it has created the opportunity, the possibility to reform and to rebuild, to reframe this church that's going to emerge. Much of what was going on before wasn't working and we have a chance to do something differently. Absolutely. And we, so we want to look at that big cultural kind of picture and story. And then we do want to bring it down to, to how do we respond to that? And so some of the questions I'm kind of asking myself in this moment are, how Jesus-centered is my life? How is God's story shaping my story and the story of those around me? What other stories are, are competing to shape my life? And then how do I better embody and also share the God's story with those around me? This is the core of the Being Human project. We are looking at how we can better articulate and communicate this beautiful God story. We're doing some work uh, behind the scenes on what we call theological anthropology, a fancy way of saying what does the Bible says it means to be human, because our stories shape how we understand ourselves. They shape our ethics, our decision making, and they ultimately shape our practice, the ways in which we live. Absolutely. We're so excited to be involved in this project. This podcast is one small strand of that. We are on the journey. We're inviting you to come with us to join us on that journey. The podcast will be back in a few months' time. Uh, we'll have more commentary. We'll have more interviews. We'll have the same old presenters, you and me, I think. <laughs> um, but let us know what you would like to hear more of. Where are the challenge points for you? Where do you find the kind of jarring moments? You can email us. I'm hopefully going to get this right. It's beinghuman at eauk.org. Well done. Yes, you can get us on Twitter uh, at Joe Frosty and at Peter Linus. You can work out which one's which. Um, and we are gathering together the resources, the materials. We are looking at how we want to best communicate and engage. We are deeply passionate about the God story, the true, uh, the beautiful and the good story of this world. Um, and we want to then identify and engage with some of the cultural influences and challenges that are out there. And then we want to affect deep and lasting change to see the kingdom come in this moment, to see people encounter and live into a relationship with Jesus. So thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, God bless. Be blessed.